A very good morning to you all, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. It is still Christmas, still Christmas until Wednesday when we celebrate Epiphany, and then we move into the the new church season. I wonder right now what you are hoping for. I'd like you to turn to a neighbor and tell them something you're hoping for in 2016. Okay, maybe you're hoping to lose a few pounds. Maybe you're hoping to finally finish that job around the house. Maybe you're hoping that some team somewhere, anywhere in New York will finally go all the way. As a person from Kansas City, I just have to say my blood runs blue, so I'm hoping against the rest of you. But that's all right. I hope you can still listen, from, listen to me this morning. With all that's going on right now in our world, um, a sure and steadfast hope to anchor our souls is as necessary as ever. And today I'd like to ask you to think with me about why hoping in God's promises is a good bet, if you will. Why may we hope confidently in this God and his promises? Uh, For our time together this morning, I'd like to invite you to um, join me in the book of Psalms 147. That's the passage that was read earlier. If you have your Bible with you, open up to that. We'll come back to that text in a moment. But for right now, I'd like to invite you into my world for a little while. Um, I am unashamed about my status as a word nerd. I love a good word. I love a good pun. I'm one of those people that thinks puns are the highest form of humor. And here's a great one that I heard just yesterday. I tried to catch some fog, but I missed. See, someone laughed hard. We need to meet up. (laughs) I never go anywhere without a dictionary. I actually downloaded a separate dictionary app onto my phone because the one that came with the Apple programs just wasn't the right dictionary. There are such things as right and wrong dictionaries. I'm sure that you could guess what my favorite activity is. Reading. Very few things delight me more than to come upon a word I do not know and to pull out my phone and to look it up on my dictionary app. I don't know of a better pleasure in my daily life than to find just the right word. I agree wholeheartedly with Mark Twain when he says that the difference between the right word and the wrong word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. I suppose it's no surprise then that I make my living with words. Um, If you don't know me or what I do for a living, I teach Old Testament up at the college up the hill. And so I read words, I translate them, I write them and teach them and preach them on a regular basis. But things didn't start out quite so smoothly in my own relationship with language. I was one of those odd ducks who did not speak a word for the first two years of my life. And when I turned two in August of 1979, uh, I had not yet even said mama or dada. I pointed or grunted at everything. My folks eventually had me tested, and they were told that I was deaf. But four weeks later, my big brother went to school. 
and there was no one at home anymore to do my talking for me. So I said my first word, but it was actually a sentence. And I haven't stopped since. I suppose you could say that my first second language was meow. Meow, meow, pussycat. On Mr. Rogers, I understood every word that she said with those meows. I was reading by the time I was four, fluent in pig Latin. By the time I was seven, you might laugh at that, but I learned it from my papa. And I would wonder, Spanish came next in first grade, then Hebrew alphabet at seven. I started to learn a little bit of sign language, American sign language with my mother at eight. Picked up some Spanish in high school, and then when I declared biblical studies as my major in college, of course, that meant Greek. Two more along the way before I graduated, and then five languages in grad school. So I suppose you could say that words are kind of an obsession with me. It's a regular part of my job as a biblical scholar, particularly, to translate words from one language into another. And this is as much an art as it is a science. Most of you, if I asked you, you would say that my job in that instance is to get to the right translation of something as sacred as the written word of God. But professional translators resist the idea of right translations. Now, certainly there are wrong translations, um, or inaccurate translations, or incomplete translations. But the primary goal in translation, any translation, is to allow the words of the second language to communicate as fully and freely as possible the meanings of the words in the first language. So let me give you an example. There is a phrase in Revelation 5.5. It only occurs in Revelation 5.5. You'll be surprised that it only occurs once in the entire Bible. It is Lion of Judah. Only once. When William Tyndale first translated the Bible into English in 1526, an act which eventually got him executed as a heretic, by the way, he had no trouble finding the right word in English to communicate the Greek word leon, what we know as lion. Of course, our English word lion is descended, if you will, from the Latin leon, through the Greek Uh, Greek through the Latin and then into English. And so, even better, Tyndale was working for an audience that knew what a lion was. The English had seen lions. They were symbols of royalty and majesty and nobility and fierce strength, etc. So it was an easy decision. He sees leon in Greek. He writes lion in English. Bingo, bango, job done. But what if Tyndale were trying to translate to a group of folks who not only didn't have a word for lion in their language, but also had no clue what a lion was? What would he have done then? Suppose, for instance, that he was trying to translate for, say, a group of Inuit up in the northernmost reaches of our continent. They have never seen a lion There are no large pack animal cats or pride animals in North America. How would he have gotten that idea across? Well, he would have had several options if we're proposing this as a sort of a historical thought experiment. You could modify an existing concept in the culture. So you could say, well, it's like the lynx 
which North American Native peoples would know. But it's larger and it's gold. So in the biblical translation at Revelation 5, 5, he could say, instead of Lion of Judah, large links of gold from Judah. Okay, that would work. He could also proceed by analogy. So if the lion is a predator animal, an apex predator, it is a scavenger, it lives in prides. Can you think of an animal in the far reaches of the North American continent that might match that? Sort of a wolf, right? So he could then translate, okay, so the wolf of Judah. Now I ask you, is either of those an accurate translation of lion? No. But do they get the point across? Yes, they communicate fully. Even if the words don't strictly meet our standard of accuracy. And you will remember what I said took priority. Communicating as much as possible the fullness of a concept. Um, Of course, there would be other options. You could show a picture or a painting of a lion. You could try to act out a lion in today's world, you could show a video of a lion and say, this is a lion, and then just put the word lion on that, and then they would know. But that leaves the realm of written communication. And so, to help illustrate what a word means, sometimes you have to show what it means, rather than simply try and find a bunch of extra words to make it work in that language. We do this all the time. You all know what the word voila means, don't you? How many of you actually speak French? Not as many of us as should. (laughs) But how do you know what voila means? It means literally, look there, see there. But it means a little bit more than that, don't you think? It, It sort of means, I have something I want to show you with a little bit of panache and surprise. Like when you whip the cover off the sculpture to show the final work. Voila! Well, I could say, I have a little something to show you with a little bit of panache and surprise, or you could just do it. Voila. And if you do that enough, the meaning comes through, right? Voila. So what? What this lesson on uh, the complexities of translation theory and a little glimpse into my world, you are now on the same page with me as I try to make sense of one of the most important words in all of Scripture. This word is the reason that our hope is sure. This word is why our God's promises can be trusted. This word is also, unfortunately, notoriously difficult to translate in a way that communicates fully the entire meaning of the Hebrew concept. It's a deeply complex word, and it's critical at the same time to understanding God's attitude towards us. This word explodes the common misdiagnosis that God is anger in the Old Testament and love in the New. From now on, you are all uh, required to challenge that notion anytime you encounter it after hearing this sermon. The word is chesed. Now, it starts with a word, uh, with a sound that English does not have, and you have to get your phlegm going enough, so I'm hoping enough of you have a cold today that you can get that action going down in the back of your throat. <sighs> Chesed. Try it out with that neighbor again a couple times. Chesed. 
I want you to try it out because this is a word I want you to begin to incorporate into your vocabulary the same way that you use the word agape. This is God's love. But what does that mean? And that is the $10,000 question. It is the last word in verse 11 of our passage. So if you, if you have your Bible open, Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. That phrase, unfailing love, in English is the NIV translator's attempt to render chesed. If you have a different translation in front of you, you might have something like steadfast love or loving kindness. When you see that phrase from now on in the Old Testament, you are dealing with the word chesed. You will see it 250 times in the Old Testament. But what is chesed? Um, Various translations try to render this unswerving loyalty, loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love, unfailing love, loyalty, grace, unchanging love, even clemency in some cases. This should not surprise us. Love is a tricky concept, isn't it? We have a bit of a handicap in our language when I can use the same word to describe how much I love my nail polish and how much I love my husband. That's a problem. (laughs) And some of you may be familiar with the words for love used in the New Testament. I've already mentioned agape. You probably already know phileo, that familial kind of love. Um, You also probably know eros, that kind of love that is driven by passion for the other person. Hebrew has lots of words for love too. Chesed is only one of them, but chesed is unique. It appears 250 times in the Old Testament and nowhere else in any other ancient literature is there a cognate. There is no other word anywhere else in the world for this kind of love. Sometimes chesed in the Old Testament is used of human beings cheseding each other, if you will. <laughs> and when this happens, we can see that this kind of love looks a little bit like loyalty and a little bit like kindness, a little bit like mercy, a little bit like the duty of protecting another person, a little bit like the commitment to covenant relationship. And when chesed is used of God, as it is in our psalm, It refers to God's infinite capacity for all of those things. Protection, love, compassion, loyalty, kindness, on and on. In this sense, we are doing what the translator tried to do. We're modifying an existing concept. It's like when humans do this, only to the degree of divine, right? We sometimes also try to choose another concept Uh, So sometimes we'll just say, the translation will say kindness or loyalty. But here is one huge clue to the meaning of chesed. You don't feel chesed. You do chesed. Chesed is always preceded in Hebrew by the verb asa, or almost always, which means to do or to make. You make chesed. You do chesed to another person. And the witness of scripture is that God can be trusted always to do chesed. God's chesed is a relentless pursuit of that which is for our good. It's the kind of love that makes that father pick up his child from the crib 
at 2.30 in the morning and smile and coo at her instead of, what are you doing awake? Go back to sleep. Chesed is that kind of love. Chesed is something that God certainly does not owe to us, but oddly he has chosen to owe it to us because of the covenant that God entered into. Chesed is a fiercely protective love, like a mother bear robbed of her cubs, the Old Testament says. That's fierce love. Well, I could go on like a good translator trying to find the right English word, or I can paint you a picture of chesed by pointing you back to our psalm. In verse 2, chesed is what God is acting upon when he builds up Jerusalem and gathers the exiles. Hesed drives Yahweh to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds in verse 3. In verse 5, God's hesed is powered by his might and greatness and his understanding which is limitless. And because of this, God's hesed sustains the humble. Chesed is not only directed at us humans, though. In verses 8 and 9, we see that God's chesed covers the sky with clouds and supplies the earth with rain and makes even the grass to grow on the hills. He gives food to the cattle and for the young ravens when they call, in verse 9. In verses 13 and 14, Chesed drives God to strengthen the bars of our gates and to bless our people within us. He grants peace to our borders and satisfies us with the finest of wheat. And here we are talking specifically of Israel, and that is exactly what God did for Israel because of his Chesed love. But then we come to verse 20. And this thought is a little unsettling to us. Verse 19 starts, He has revealed his word to Jacob and his laws and decrees to Israel, and he has done this for no other nation, and they do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Huh? (laughs) This is unsettling to us that Hesed was understood as available to Israel. But this does communicate an important aspect of chesed, that it is inherently relational. I must be in relationship with you in order to show you chesed. This is not just the benign respect and civility that is showered on everybody indiscriminately. Chesed is the kind of love that makes you feel like you're the favorite child. And this reminds me of what happened uh, when my grandfather died. It was finals week of my senior year of college. And we were gathered with all the cousins one night on a lakefront cottage. And all of the grown-ups, the generation above us, were somewhere else. And the seven grandkids sat around with our spouses and children. And we discovered one by one that night that each one of us harbored the secret knowledge that we were grandpa's favorite. (laughs) All seven of us. That's what chesed love looks like. And at this time in history, Israel did occupy a special and favored status in covenant with Yahweh. 
And chesed was available to the world through Israel. At least that's what the plan was, that Yahweh loved Israel through chesed, and so they chesedded each other. And as they did that so well, others would be drawn in. And as they loved those outsiders well, and still more saw, and those coming in saw then how well Yahweh loved, eventually any who wanted could know his chesed. But Israel never understood how chesed was different than the other kinds of love. At least they never got it in a way that changed them. And so Christ came. In the ultimate act of translation, Christ hung on the cross to make that loving favor that fierce, valiant, chesed love, plain for everyone to see, no matter what your language, and free for any of us to take. Maybe we have never understood the word chesed well, or love for that matter, but God has never been content to leave it only to words, no matter how much I love them. First with Israel and ultimately in Jesus, God has always translated his love through actions. And this is chesed, the love that you perform, the love that you show, the love that you do. It's the kind of love that Paul is basing his argument on when he says, as though we were God's favored children, in verse 3, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and that he has chosen us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption. And then down in verse 7, this chesed results in redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That is chesed. Chesed love is lavished love with all wisdom and understanding. In verse 9, it continues with this really astounding statement that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Chesed love is God's love for us. May you know that love this year in a new way. May you trust that love this year. Chesed is what makes God a good bet because he has chosen us and lavished his love on us and gone to the grave protecting us. May it be so. Amen.